If you don't already know me, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Wesley. I'm glad that all of you are here. As Akeen said, I'm especially glad to have met some of you who haven't been here before. I think there may be some others of you that I still have yet to meet, uh, and I hope that we'll get to say hello before you go tonight. I can't remember if Akeen tried to explain what the well is. I think he reneged on that, actually. So I'll try to say what it is if you've never been here before. In some ways, what it is should be already evident, which, which is it's a place that we read the Bible together. Uh, at its heart, what the well is, is a time every week that we, we devote serious and sustained attention to the Word of God. And every year, typically, we have a particular book of the Bible that we're focusing on. This year, it is the book of Genesis. So you have a kind of scripture sandwich that we just read from, and in the middle is, the, is what we're really focusing on tonight, is that reading from Genesis chapter 3. This gathering every single week is really meant to be the beginning of a Bible study, of a weekly Bible study, which, which is meant to be continued in a weekly gathering at a small group where we continue to digest the Word of God together and where we try to do that in ways that knit our lives together as the body of Christ. So that's what the well is. I've got some, a little bit of preliminary stuff here um, in a way that I don't always for this particular passage of Scripture. This is, I realized as I started to write this talk that even though as a preacher of, I don't know, I mean, I've been in ministry for going, I don't know, some, somewhere over, somewhere verging on 15 years now. And even though I have talked about this passage about a million times, I realized as I was preparing this talk that I may never have actually just done a talk only on these particular verses. And as I delved into them this week, what I realized is the kind of overwhelming richness of this passage of scripture. And I mentioned that in some ways by way of a disclaimer, just to say that it may turn out that we actually need a couple of weeks on these verses. What I'm going to cover tonight, to an extent I'll cover this whole passage, but, but I'm going to most carefully cover basically the first seven verses of what we just read. So in some way next week, we'll probably still be dwelling upon the rest of this passage. Another thing I want to mention are what I take to be some of the interpretive parameters that we're going to read these verses with. So here's what I mean. We read scripture through the eyes of faith, not as analytical, sort of um, disinterested third parties. We read the Bible always as people that, always, that already find ourselves caught up into relationship with the living God. That's the way Christians read the Bible, which is to say that there are things that when we open the book that it already can and can't mean. So in short, what scripture can't mean is that God is bad <laughs> because we've already met him in Christ and know that not to be the case. And I mention that because this passage, some of the brilliance of this passage is how deeply mysterious it is, actually, in some ways, and how many faithful interpretations are possible. But there also in this passage are ways to really go wrong and to misunderstand the nature of what's happening here. And so I want to start off by saying what I take to be what some of the things that we can and cannot say as we read Genesis chapter 3. We cannot say broadly that God is the architect of the fall. We cannot say that God is the architect of the fall. He cannot be the one who causes, in any way, shape, or form, humanity to fall. And we also cannot say 
that God's response to the fall, which we won't get to until next week or maybe the week after that, is unjust. That he, he reacts in a way that is unjust in response to the fall. Here's some of the implications of that. We can't say that the fall is caused by creation, by any part of creation. And in fact, Scripture itself constrains us at this point. Because so much of what we've been reading of the creation account so far is this emphatic, reiterated point that the world that God has made is decisively good, that it is good. And so whatever we do in interpreting Genesis chapter 3, we can't come away with an interpretation that suggests that creation is anything other than good, which is to say that, there, but, but that's, that's harder to do than you might realize, Right? It's very easy to read these verses and to think that what's gone wrong is that creation is somehow too attractive. That it's, it's almost like too good. And that that gets a hold of humanity in a way that ruins everything. We cannot say that the fall is caused by creation. We also cannot say that the fall is caused by human nature. You cannot say that the fall is caused by human nature. What I mean is this. These are unfallen humans until they're fallen. And so their nature is intact. Their nature is, until they fall, it is as God means for it to be. And so if there's something intrinsic to human nature before the fall that ends up causing the fall, that again ends up meaning that God is responsible in some way for humanity's fall. Does that make sense? So we need to make a very sharp distinction in our reading between our experience of human nature as fallen I mean, so often we, you'll hear Christians say, well, that's just human nature. What they're talking about is what Christians should think of as our second nature, which is to say our nature after the fall. That's a distorted and depleted and corrupted nature. And that is what we are definitely most familiar with. But for that reason, we need to be very careful not to make the mistake of thinking that the fall is caused by human nature as made by God. Whatever we say, we have to be able to affirm that human beings can really be held responsible for their decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If this is inevitable, if human beings couldn't have done otherwise than what they do here, then in short, God's response to the fall is unjust because human beings can't really be held responsible. Does that make sense? So whatever we say, we have to be able to affirm that human beings really can be held responsible for their decision to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Those are some of what I take to be some interpretive rules or guidelines for the way we're going to read this. Here we go, into the passage itself. I want to start with some words from the first verse of what we read in Genesis 3 and from the last verse of what we read in Genesis 3. The passage begins, now the serpent. Now the serpent. And I just want to stop right there and recognize that the story of the fall is firstly a story about the serpent. It is firstly a story about the serpent. And I want you to, as we're reading this, I want you to, to think about how, how substantial of a role does the snake play in the way that you remember this story? And how does that compare to the significance of the snake's role 
in the way that the story is actually written. The story of the fall is firstly a story about the serpent. There is in the garden a snake. And what is abundantly clear about this serpent is that it is a decidedly malevolent and a calculatedly deceptive agency that is bent upon the mutilation and the destruction of humanity. That seems undeniable to me. Does anybody want to argue with that? I won't, like, stomp you if you do. I just, I mean, can we agree that that seems very clear? This is a decidedly malevolent, and the snake is a bad guy. Full stop in this story. It's bent upon the mutilation and destruction of humanity. And this, as plain as that is, it is not explicitly explained in the passage. But it begs for explanation, unavoidably. I mean, it cries out for some kind of an explanation. There has been nothing of this sort up until this point. This is an anomalous feature of the story so far. What has been said about animate creatures up until this point is that they are good and that they are very clearly subservient to and under the, the dominion of humanity. But here comes along this serpent that is clearly bent upon the destruction of what God is made, has made. What this suggests is that there is something that has already happened that is not explicitly recorded in Genesis, but that precedes the narrative of humanity's creation and fall. It certainly precedes humanity's fall. What it suggests is that there is already a fallen creature there, even before Adam and Eve fall. Right? So there is a fall suggested insofar as the story begs for an explanation, that is a very plausible one, just, just on the basis of, of what we are. If, if Genesis were to exist in isolation, it by itself would already suggest that. This is one of the reasons why Christians and Jews have effectively always, I mean, there are some exceptions, but in the larger trajectory of, of scriptural interpretation, they are very much anomalies. Christians and Jews have almost always tended to read the serpent as an unambiguous manifestation of Satan whether it is literally Satan himself or Satan sort of uh, possessing or in some way manifesting himself as a snake, the overwhelming explanation for this is that this is the devil, right? This is an angel that has fallen, that has already rejected the Lord, and that is now bent upon the destruction of the Lord's creation. As one theologian writes, the serpent is not just a particular animal in the garden of paradise, but is instead a grand spiritual being who has already embarked on the deepest and widest possible rebellion against God. I don't know why any Christian shouldn't like that interpretation. Uh, it's the one that we've been having for a real long time. But if for some reason you don't, what I would challenge you with is just to recognize the way that scripture itself, later scripture seems to assume this about this passage too. The Bible itself seems to interpret the Bible in that way in more and less explicit ways in other places. Moving on to that, that last verse that I mentioned a second ago here. Eve says, in response to the Lord's 
questioning of her. What is this that you have done? She says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. The serpent deceived me. So again, I just want to reiterate here, first and last, this is a story about the snake. I'm not saying it's not a story about human beings, but it's a story about the snake. But what I want you to focus on here is that word deceived. The serpent deceived me. And I want to encourage us to let the category of deception, of lying, be primary in the way that we understand the exchange between the serpent and Adam and Eve. That may seem like an obvious thing to do, but here's what I mean. I think usually we think about this, the primary category we use to think about this is the category of temptation, and that's not wrong. But what I want us to recognize, certainly the devil tempts. We see him doing that in our gospel reading tonight. Certainly Satan tempts, but what I want want us to recognize is that the primary description here is a description of deceiving. The shape of, of Satan's temptation almost always comes not merely as a like, doesn't this thing look really nice? It comes as a lie. It comes as an attempt to deceive. As Jesus says of Satan in the Gospel of John, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is how Jesus describes the devil. I would actually argue that Jesus very much has Genesis 3 in mind when he says these words. He's not quoting it chapter and verse, but to me, this is a pretty clear interpretation of Genesis 3. Likewise, in Revelation chapter 19, almost at the very end of the book of Revelation, we read, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. By the way, I just want to note that the Bible has all kinds of wacky stuff like this going on in it, with angels doing all kinds of stuff which is one of the things that lends plausibility, like scriptural plausibility to the notion that angels, that something must have happened with the angels. Anyway, moving on. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. By the way, there's another place in the Gospels where Jesus says of himself, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And listen to this, that ancient serpent... This is a very deliberate reference uh, in the book of Revelation to Genesis 3. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. And listen to this. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. The serpent deceived me, Eve said. And deception is the way that we need to understand what's going on in the fall narrative. His deception of the human beings begins with a question. The serpent's question to Eve is a question about the word of God. It's a question about what God has said, what God has or hasn't commanded. And already right now, I want you to begin to recognize that in many ways, the decision to fall or not to fall in this story has everything to do with the decision about who to believe. Whose words to trust, all right? The serpent's question to Eve is a question about word, the words of God. Has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You know, we don't really know whether or not the serpent already knew what God had said or not. Maybe he did, 
maybe this was like a, a, a way of, of, of sort of finding out information that he could use against Adam and Eve. But either way, it already is a question that sort of casts a pall of ambiguity and of doubt upon what the Lord has said. Has God really said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That, of course, is not what God said. The shape of the question also already has a subtext. So what's important here is not just that Satan is distorting what God said. It's, what's not, it's, what, it's the subtext. It's what's implied in what he's saying. The subtext is something like, surely it would be ridiculous for God to make all of this great stuff, but then withhold that goodness from you. Surely God isn't withholding anything from you, is he? So that's the sort of prelude to the, the lie proper, is this question. And then in verses 4 and 5, I would say, if we're reading this as a deception, this is where the lie actually happens. I just want to ask you to read those verses real quick. You've got them on your little bulletin there. Verses 4 and 5. And I want you to tell me what exactly is the lie. Does he say perhaps? Oh, got it. Okay, yeah. I was like, ooh, I didn't notice that. Um, <laughs> yeah. You will become like God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If, what sort of a lie is that? If it is one. <laughs> yeah, the bad kind. That's right. Very good. So I think very, in, in like the broadest terms, the lie of the serpent is that you are choosing life when in fact you are choosing death. I think if we were to summarize all of the multifaceted dimensions of this lie, and it does have many facets, but what it adds up to is the lie that you, in eating the, tree of this, the fruit of this tree, you're choosing life, when in fact what that choice is, is the choice of death. Verse 4, as we've already noted, the serpent says to the woman, you certainly will not die. The basic assertion of the lie is very bald-faced. It's a bald-faced contradiction of what God has said. This is exactly the same thing. Again, what I want you to notice here isn't just that Satan is contradicting what God has said. But again, the really important thing here is the subtext. Because this is exactly the same thing as Satan calling God a liar. God has lied to you, is what the serpent is saying. God has misled you. Eve says, God said if we eat of this tree, we will die. The serpent says, no, you won't. And the subtext is, God has misled you. The lie contains an unstated, but a very straightforward claim that God is not trustworthy. And it doesn't stop there. Moving on to verse 5. For God knows, for God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. So there are promises that are made here. Again, this is that dimension that I was talking about where there's this, there's, it looks, it sort of envisions a future. And actually, we can't say that these promises are entirely false. This is one of the things that makes the lie work, is that it in some ways has a ring of truth to it. We're going to read in just a minute that their eyes are in fact open. 
For God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. The implication, though, the really important thing I want you to see here, the implication is that there's something that God is withholding from you. There's something God's withholding from you. Something that God has that he's not giving to you. This more perfect sight is something, and something, there's something that he also knows, like a knowledge, that he's not letting you in on. This thing God said will kill you. It not only won't kill you, it will make you more alive than God wants you to be. More alive than you already are. It will give you a better life than the life that God has given you. So it's a depiction of God, again, in its deepest sense. It's a depiction of God. Even more deeply maybe than that, in its most elemental, the lie is that there is such a thing as life that doesn't come from God. That there could be such a thing as life that doesn't come as a gift from God. Where is this life? Other than the one God gives you going to come from, we might ask in response to the serpent. And the answer is, Eve, it's going to come from you. That's where the life is going to come from. You will be like God. You will be like God, the serpent says. Not just insofar as you will know good and evil, but that in the sense that it will be by your own will, it will be by your choice, by the force of your own choosing, that you will be reaching out and getting life for yourself. In that sense, you will be like God. So again, at its most elemental, the lie is that there is such a thing as a life that could come anywhere other than from the Lord's own gift. When we come to verse 6, we need to read this verse as an indefinite interval of time. All right? It's an interval. There's some indefinite amount of time of deliberation happening here in which Eve regards the tree. This is not the first time Eve has seen the tree, nor is it even the first time that we should imagine that she has given the tree some kind of attention. Because God, first of all, has placed this tree along with the tree of life at the very center of the garden where Adam and Eve live so that it would be difficult for them to miss it. Not to mention the fact that God was the first one to direct Adam and Eve's attention to the tree. He has directed their attention to the tree very deliberately with this forceful warning and command. Don't eat of this because it will kill you. So as Eve looks upon that tree, we know from what she's already said. So she has a very clear memory of the way that God has described that tree and of the commandment that he has given her in relation to it. She sees that the tree is good for food, we read in verse 6, and that it is a delight to the eyes. These things would already have been, the, would already have been true before she encountered the serpent. There isn't anything that God has made that is not good. 
and very good even. And we noticed two weeks ago when we were reading through the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 9 of chapter 2, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the trees of the garden, including specifically the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So when we read in verse 6, this moment of Eve regarding the tree, she sees that it's good for food and it's a delight to the eyes. Those things would already have been the case prior to her encounter. That would have already been the way that she saw the tree prior to her encounter with the serpent. Desire, we mentioned a couple weeks ago. This is an original feature of creation. And we need to be really careful at this point not to think that it's Eve's desire that leads her astray here. Certainly Satan appeals to it in some way, but it's not her desire itself. Desire is an original feature of creation, but it's that third thing that Eve sees that highlights the infiltration of the serpent's lie into what she sees, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. It's at that point that we can see that Eve is trying on. She's beginning to entertain the lie. This tree is going to give you knowledge. It's going to make you like God. Eve has seen this tree before, but now she begins to see the tree as described by the serpent. It is the presence of the serpent, not the tree and all its desirability, that calls out to Eve. It's the voice of the serpent, not Eve's own craving, that leads her away. It's the malevolent intruder in the garden, something from outside of Eve rather than something from within Eve that initiates the fall. And yet, everything we know about what Eve already knew about that tree and the relationship that she had with God means that she consents to the deceit. She participates willingly in the deception. So what it means here to be deceived really is to be deceived, but it's not the same way that like you would try to deceive a flock of ducks with a bunch of decoys on a pond. Eve consents in this. Does that make sense? She participates in her own deception. She took some of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. I want to focus on those words, with her. This is the point where we realize that other joker's been there all along in this conversation. The shape of the fall unfolds as a failure of marriage. God regarded Adam uh, in the latter half of chapter 2, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. This is what Camelia talked about last week. Why is it not good for man to be alone, though? Because among other reasons, he needs help not listening to snakes. Why does Adam need a helper fit for him? Because this serpent is on the loose in the world. In his silence, Adam is denying Eve 
the help that she needs. Eve was taken out of Adam's very ribcage, given to him to be his helpmeet, his companion, so that when he first encounters Eve, he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Yet on the whole in Genesis chapter 3, it is as if Adam withdraws his companionship from Eve. That withdrawal of his companionship, it's most conspicuously evident at the moment later on in the passage where he like straight up throws her under the bus. Whenever God comes walking through the garden and asks what he's done. But even before that, his withdrawal of companionship from Eve, it's evident in his silence. In the midst of this conversation that Eve is having with the serpent. And we might We should ask, when should Adam have spoken up? At what point in this story should he have interjected and said something? Maybe even more importantly, what should he have said? And who should he have said it to? Jesus makes it abundantly clear in the temptation narratives in the Gospels that there isn't anything more that humanity is given with which to meet the words of the serpent than with the word of God with God's own words, which doesn't seem like much. I mean, this serpent is no joke. He's dangerous. And yet Jesus makes it clear that the word of God, the commandments of God, meager as they seem in the face of such a malevolent enemy, they're enough. And Adam has the words of God. It's understandable at this point to ask, if God was going to let that snake be on the loose in the garden, Surely he ought to have equipped Adam and Eve to resist it. One of the ways that he equipped them was with his word and with each other. He equipped them with one another. So when Adam heard that snake talking to his wife, contradicting God's commandment, Adam should have repeated what Eve had already said. Eve uttered the commandment of God in response to the snake. Adam should have said at some point in this, no. God said, we can eat of every tree in the garden except that one because it will kill us. This snake says it won't, but God said it will. That's what Adam should have said at some point. Probably he should have said it to Eve instead of trying to interact with the snake. But that's that's a whole other thing. Moving on to verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. The tree that they've eaten from is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The promise that the devil made, as interpreted by Eve, is that it will make one wise, that it will make one like God, that it will open their eyes. We call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, But as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago already, we need to to see it here again. Adam and Eve already know good. The only thing that they can't know yet, the only possible repository of knowledge that exists in the fruit of this tree is the knowledge of evil. That's the only thing this tree can make them know. And the tree doesn't do that by some kind of magic trick. There isn't something magical in that fruit that like chemically or somehow magically or spiritually 
makes them see things differently. Adam and Eve come to know evil by choosing evil. They come to know evil by choosing evil. What they discover isn't some grand new vista of knowledge that had heretofore been kept secret from them. Rather, what Adam and Eve discover is themselves in the act of rejecting the gift of existence and life. The serpent said, your eyes will be opened. That's exactly what happens. They are opened. But what they see, what they come to know, is that they are naked. Adam and Eve discover themselves turned away from God. They discover themselves turned toward their own oblivion. Which sounds like really dramatic language, but that's the kind of language we need to understand what evil is. Or rather, what evil isn't. Evil isn't. Evil is non-being. Evil is choosing to turn back to nothingness. Because to, to take this leap of faith, this weird leap of faith, and believe that there could be life that comes from any other place other than the, the creator of everything that is, that is Whatever it looks like to us at the moment that we do it, what it really is, is to embrace nothingness and to project the gift of our own existence. It's a turn toward oblivion. Verse 11, the latter half of verse 11, have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? The tree which I commanded you not to eat. What's significant about this choice has everything to do with the commandment of God. And yet, we need to recognize, again, that this isn't just like a, tra like a trap that God plays for Adam and Eve in the garden. Like, as long as you don't break this one rule, everything will be fine. But if you do break it, I'm ready to spring like a trap and bring all kind of judgment to bear upon you. It has everything to do with this commandment, but their sin is not merely a matter of rule breaking. But as I said already, it's this kind of bizarro leap of faith. The deeper faults of Adam and Eve, sin, it's not just breaking a rule, but it's, it's misplaced trust. Human freedom, we talked about the fact that commandments are original to creation. They don't just come after humanity is fallen. We have this tendency of thinking that commandment is strictly a corrective for sin. And in many ways, that is what some of the commandments we have in Scripture are for. But, but Adam and Eve were already commanded by God before they fell, which suggests that there's something in human nature that calls out to be addressed in that way. Human freedom is commanded freedom. The kind of freedom that human beings are given is a freedom that needs to be obedient to someone and that will be obedient to some voice or other. God gives the gift of life, of existence, of all the world to Adam and Eve. He wants them to receive that gift actively. And that's the significance of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that they also have the freedom to reject that gift. 
over against the command of God, over against the words God has spoken to them, Adam and Eve choose to act upon the word of the serpent. By the way, that is all that they have to act on, is the word of a snake. The word of a snake. When it comes to what God has said, they have more to go on than that. They have a lot more than that to go on with God. Certainly God has given them his word, which is very important. He has commanded them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But they also know God in all his intimate care and affection for them. They know God is the one who has given them the gift of each other. One that we know that at least Adam seems to have been awed by. And who has given them all the world, planted for them this abundant garden with everything that they need to thrive. And so there is something gratuitously strange about the decision to go on the word of the snake over against the word of God. We live in a world where the serpent is still very much on the loose. Might not be the way that you would do it if you were God. But at least for now, this is the way that the Lord is allowing it to continue to happen. That the serpent is still very much on the loose. The serpent is a more prominent player in our story and in our lives, I think, than we usually recognize. I think even when we read this story of Genesis, a story which every Christian is deeply familiar with, this part of Genesis, good and evil, we don't give the devil his due, actually, in the way that we interpret this story. He's a way more prominent player in our story and in our lives than we usually recognize, and that is surely by design. It's not an accident that he is not as prominent in our imaginations as he actually is on the pages of Scripture. And so I think putting Genesis chapter 3 into practice may be largely a matter of giving the devil his due, by which I mean being on guard against our adversary, the serpent, in a way that takes him seriously. The serpent remains a dangerous foe, not to be trifled with. And yet the basic shape of his attack never really changes. And it has been illumined for us by the word of God, here and elsewhere, if we are willing to heed it. So I just want to try to point out a couple of the ways that Genesis and other parts of Scripture set us on notice and help us to identify the wiles of the serpent as they actually come to us. So these are some kind of broad categories that I want to, I want to move through here. Firstly, the lie about God is what's always most basic in the deception of the devil, which is to say that even though it, often, it may not often come to us as straightforwardly the claim, you can't really trust God, the lie about God's trustworthiness is, is always deeply at play in the attacks of Satan. Satan sows the seed of distrust. He makes us doubt that following God's will is going to lead to life. The faith of obedience to God's commandment, then, is the way out. I mean, like, 
if you want to, there's an extent to which if you want to just like have the shortcut, and I'm not saying there really is one, but if there were a shortcut to resisting the devil, it would just be obey God, actually. Because in obeying the Lord's commandments, you are always taking a step of faith and trust that doing what he says is going to lead to your life and your flourishing, regardless of what it seems like to you. How sharply, how constantly do you find yourself in the grip of God's commandments? Recall our reading from Deuteronomy two weeks ago. There Moses says, this word of God, the law, it's not far away from you, he says. It's not far away from you. It's not out of your grasp. Rather, it's close to you. It's on your lips. It's in your heart so that you can do it. Why did Moses have to go to the trouble to say, it's not far away where you can't get to it? It's right here, the commandment of God. How near do the commandments of God seem to you? Satan wants to obscure the Lord's commandments from your vision, from your memory, such that without conscious effort to resist him, you will in fact forget the things God has commanded you to do. Or you will habitually ignore all the summons to obedience that the Christian life actually entails. Has anyone else had that experience? Where periodically you're like, oh yeah, there's this very basic thing I'm supposed to be doing as a Christian, and I've just been kind of glossing over that. Like, you know, not hating folks, for example. Maybe that's just mine, you know? But like, I was sitting at a cross-country practice with my wife a few weeks ago. I don't know if I even want to tell the story, but <laughs> I'll just say, as I was looking at different folks, um, I said some things, and Holly was like, gah, you hate those people. You don't even know them. And I was like, I do, don't I? And I'm, not, I'm definitely not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to love my neighbor. I'm supposed to be careful about what comes out of my mouth because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And the discovery in that moment isn't just a discovery of my sin. It's like, oh yeah, the commandments of God. There's nothing novel about this sin. What's happened is that in some way, I've, become, I've grown distant from the way that God addresses those parts of my life. How sharply, how constantly do you find yourself in the grip of God's commandments? Here's another big thing. The nature of the serpent's deception, in, in very basic terms, is that it makes sin seem good. It makes sin seem good. The devil does not deceive Eve by being like, it would be a very bad thing for you, Eve, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The ugliness of the choice is not what the devil is using to sell this decision. This may seem really obvious, but we need to recognize that at the moment of, of sinning, if you really think about the last time you did a thing that there's just like no question in your mind, like that was a sin. When you did it, you were believing that it would be good. You were whether you were being convinced or you were convincing yourself, you were telling and being told that it would be fine, actually. This is going to be okay because. The nature of, of the serpent's deception is that it makes him, sin seem good. 
And it follows this pattern that we see, basically, in Adam and Eve, where there's this moment of looking upon the thing and beginning to see it under the description of the devil. And it, it appears unambiguously good, and it's chosen, and then reality comes crashing down. And there is an experience of regret and of shame. Isn't it your experience that so often in the moment, the actual moment you're partaking of whatever sin you're partaking in, that you are confident in that moment, it's not, this is not going to kill me. This is not going to be death. And then after, when it is killing you, and you're experiencing that it's death, that a big part of the regret is exactly that feeling of, I knew this would happen, actually. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Both of those things are there. That's the shape that deception takes, that you do and you don't know, actually. Because the moment of sinning is a moment of, of kind of suspending belief in what you actually did know to be true in favor of the lie. And so it occurs in this rhythm of thinking it's going to be fine and then crashing back down to reality and realizing, no, it's not going to be fine. And in fact, you knew it wasn't going to be. Sin doesn't look bad at the moment you're doing it. It looks really good. Be honest with yourself about the examples of that in your life. And some of them may, may be just like the obvious kinds of sins that um, any good Baptist youth youth minister could, could name for you. How many times have you been in a moment of making out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and you know if you push the line because you have before that later on you're going to feel sick to your stomach about it for pushing that line. But in the moment you're like, no, it's actually going to be okay because we really love each other or whatever it is. Or we're going to get married one day or, or maybe just because no one's going to find out and what other people don't know won't hurt them. Or how many times, I mean, let's be honest about the fact that every interaction with pornography involves some kind of, of like you making a case to yourself or accepting this, the case that Satan is making to you that actually this time it's going to be all right. So these are very obvious places where we see this rhythm of like believing that it's going to be good and then being like, nope, it wasn't. There are more subtle things, I think, as well where if we were willing to recognize the patterns of what just does not lead to our life and flourishing, that we could see that same, like, the lie that it's good, but actually it's not at play in maybe more subtle ways. Like, isn't your, your cell phone just the sort of perfect microcosm of that? How many times do you reach for it every day? You almost certainly don't know but it might number in the thousands. And, and almost every moment that you reach for it, aren't you looking for some kind of relief or some kind of escape? And isn't there this, isn't there even in a tiny way this, this story that you're buying into in that moment when you reach for your cell phone that like, this is gonna make me feel good. Checking the text, seeing if so-and-so responded, looking at Instagram, whatever it is. You know, I'm not saying any of those things are even intrinsically sinful. But how often does it actually end up being good? 
How often are you really glad, actually, after the fact that you picked up your cell phone? By contrast, I can't tell you how many people have gone on Wesley mission trips over the year, over the years, and what I hear from them consistently at the end is, it was amazing not to have my cell phone for that month. Maybe the devil's lying to you with your cell phone. I don't see any reason to think that he's not. There's some other stuff I want to say right now, but I'm going to move on. The simplicity of goodness over against the complexity of sin and evil. This is another thing I think that we can take away from this passage. Goodness is simple. Things that are actually good and that are willed by God, they they have a simplicity to them. But evil is always fraught with ambiguity and complexity. I think we see this very broadly in the way that the devil's interaction with Eve is kind of casting this pall of ambiguity and doubt upon the commandments of God. He's creating this sort of murky space in which, like, maybe it is okay, actually. But that already implies, right, to, that if you find yourself in a place where, like, clearly God has said no, and you're entertaining a yes, some kind of kung fu is going to have to happen to get around that, right? Like, something pretty fancy is going to have to take place. You see what I'm saying? We see the complexity of evil in Adam and Eve's deflections of responsibility as well. When God comes and asks them, what are you doing? Neither of them just straightforwardly owns what's happened, what they've done. They both tell a story that seeks in some way to make the story of what's happened more complex than it actually is. God says, did you eat the fruit I told you not to? Adam replies, it was a little more complicated than that, actually. The woman that you gave me, she gave me some, and then I ate. Do you see how much more complex of a story that is? Eve's is a little bit better. She, I think, maybe owns up to it a little bit more. But she's still clearly passing the buck. There's a story that's being told that's way more elaborate. And, and so this is a guideline. I'm not trying to say that, I don't, I don't know. It's not like, you know, complexity is intrinsically evil. But I, I just want you to note how frequently, like, if what we're trying to do here is to recognize the wiles of the devil... We're trying to, to be able to see it when it's coming for us. That frequently one of the dead giveaways is the elaborateness of evil, the complexity of evil over against the simplicity and the straightforwardness of what's good. Evil comes as a kind of distortion of reality. The lie comes as a fantastical kind of elaborate and shifting depiction of what is the case or what might be the case after all. That's why I like that word perhaps that I thought I heard earlier. And these distortions of reality, they, they, have, they have some plausibility to them because they're kind of parasitic on the truth. But it's a kind of gauzy vision that's being portrayed. God's commandments, by contrast, they lead precisely to what really is real to the way things really are and will be. God's commandment, whether we like them or not, they are illuminative of the truth rather than just sort of imitating the truth. What is really good over against what is evil 
in many ways, it could be detected along the lines of, simpli of simplicity and complexity. This guy, Gregory of Nyssa, from back in the day, um, you could thank him for things like Trinitarian theology. He says this, good is, in its nature, simple and uniform, alien from all duplicity or conjunction with its opposite, while evil is many-colored and fairly adorned, being esteemed to be one thing and revealed by experience to be another. So what does this actually mean in practice, this, this contrast between simplicity and complexity? I mean, I think one question we can ask is, like, how hard do you have to, how hard do you have to work to justify your choices? How hard do you have to work to justify choices that you're making? Is there scripture that stands conspicuously against something that you're doing or that at least raises serious questions about it, but which, which you are habitually ignoring and trying not to engage with? How hard do you have to work to be able to justify the choices that you're making? Just as goodness is simple, so too the confession of sin ought to be simple and straightforward. If the activity of deception is largely a matter of hiding the ugliness of sin, then if confession is a medicine for our sin, which it very clearly is, if confession is going to be the medicine it needs to be, it needs to make sin not hidden. It needs to make sin naked, to leave it largely undecorated and unexplained. Next time, if you don't confess your sins to anyone, you should. It will do you good. But whether it's in the privacy of prayer or in relationship with other Christians, in small group or in a hangout or wherever else you might confess your sins, next time you confess, just try explaining less. Try doing less explanation for your sin. When I listen to myself and other people offering confessions the explanations we make sometimes can be so elaborate that by the time we're done confessing, no one can really be sure the sin that we're confessing is so bad after all. Like once I've told the story the way that I, I want to tell it with my explanations, you know, by the time it's done, it's like, I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's okay. You know what I'm saying? But sin is always bad. It's always bad. It's always to be avoided. Sin is always bad. And it's always to be avoided. So let's talk about it that way. Whenever we confess. One of the sins I've discovered in my own life recently is the sin of envy. Which is not one that I had much on my radar before. And as far as Christian tradition goes, they say it's one of the real bad ones, too. The sin of envy. I saw the sin of envy in myself this afternoon in a conversation with a colleague of mine. He told me a story about someone that he knows who's about my age who just inherited a literal million dollars from, from their relatives. And uh, I'm jealous of that. And I could explain to you if I wanted to 
some of the complexity of the pain in my relationship with my parents that makes that jealousy more acute. Because that's there. But at the end of the day, the sin of envy is a sin. And it's something of which I need to repent. And I'm not saying there isn't an explanation. But if confession is going to be the medicine it needs to be, I need to let it be simple and straightforward. Does that make sense? It's such a relief to be rescued out of, our, of the complexity of our explanations for our sins and our justifications. And to just finally be able to come to the point to say, I don't want this anymore. No matter how it might seem to other people, as good, bad, or ugly, you know, or explainable or excusable, like it's not, and I don't want it. Because it's killing me. It's such a relief. And yet it's something we can so deeply avoid. It's not good for man to be alone. We already noted. We're not meant to face the wiles of the serpent alone. And yet, I mean, you know, Adam and Eve were not alone, and they still, whew, they didn't go so well. So there's also something, it's like, there's nothing automatic about just having other folks around that makes it work either. So, but this dimension of community is an important one that we need to recognize here. Scripture very clearly acknowledges that human beings need help in facing temptation. We need help in facing temptation. The good news about Jesus is in no small part that he's come to stand between us and the voice of the serpent. And he stands in that gap for us frequently through the flesh and blood of the Christian community. Even when we ourselves are armed with scripture, with the word of God in the way that Eve was here, we're not meant to face the deceptions of the serpent alone. We need the voices of our sisters and our brothers repeating the words of God to us, backing us up in the midst of that encounter. Moreover, we really need to question the, like, the individuality and the autonomy that is everywhere championed in our society, but which in a world with a serpent on the loose is all too likely to just amount to isolation and to make us very easy prey for the serpent. So instead of so unquestioningly prizing individuality and autonomy, we really need to cherish Christian community as people that recognize how deeply we need it. We need help because there's a serpent on the loose. We need to develop habits of communal discernment in the choices that we're making. We need to submit our freedom to choose to the counsel of the body of Christ. And I don't have like a formalized process here that I'm inviting you into when I say this. How about this? How about you just start to get in the habit when you're making a choice of any significance, I don't mean like what you're going for breakfast, I mean, but maybe, you know, but, but I mean a choice of any significance, just asking your brothers and sisters, do you think this is a good idea? Does that seem achievable? Can you just ask other believers who seem to have, you know, a modicum of following Jesus in their lives, when you have a significant choice to make, you just get in the habit of, of kind of making the rounds among those people and saying, what do you think about this choice that I think I might make? What do you think I should do? Or this is what I think I'm going to do. What do you think of that? Do you think this is a good idea? Just as Adam could have spoken up, should have spoken up, Eve could have said, hey, bro, what do you think about what this snake is saying? The snake is talking to all of us, y'all. 
And we, the thing is, we don't always know how far along the line of being deceived that we are. And I'm not trying to invite you into kind of a, a paralyzing self-doubt here. I'm just saying, you're not alone, or you don't have to be, because God's made the body of Christ. On the other hand, there is this relational dynamic to sin. It may be that the serpent, that Satan, as an angel, could have come up with his rejection of God, all, sort of all on his own, all right? But human beings don't. Sin is a relational phenomenon. Eve sins in response to what the, what the serpent says. And then it continues. She turns around and gives some to her husband who is with her. And he also takes and eats with way less fanfare, way less persuasion, you know? It, it, there's an incredible ease with which this sin spreads. So there's this relational dynamism to sin. The voice of the serpent, it's all too liable to be uttered on the lips of our brothers and sisters. Certainly human beings in general, and, and even among believers. The voice of the serpent is all too liable to be uttered on our own lips. That's an uncomfortable truth, but if you want a proof text for it, just remember that moment whenever Peter tries to convince Jesus, you don't really have to go to the cross, Jesus. What are you talking about? There's no reason for you to go and die. And, Peter, and Jesus turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. And he's not just being hyperbolic. He's not just being overly aggressive. He's talking to the devil. Because the devil is talking on the lips of Peter. And trying to persuade Jesus doesn't actually have to suffer death on the cross. And so we need to be cautious about our propensity to be the one that turns around and gives someone something they don't need to be eating. And how innocently we can feel that we're doing that. Be cautious about the impulse to too quickly exonerate your brother or sister. I'm not trying to tell you to be crazy Pharisees that are always like just there ready to, you know, be the party pooper, all right? But also don't take it for granted. Don't be so attached to other people's approval and to pleasing people that you're always ready to tell people that it's okay, that whatever they're doing is okay. It seems to me the lie that we are most liable to be confronted with most frequently as Christians and the lie that we most frequently tell each other is that we don't have to actually take up our cross and follow Jesus. We rarely say it that way. You don't actually have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But frequently, the way that we exonerate one another from the commandment of God, it's, it's basically saying, actually, Jesus doesn't really want you to have to sacrifice in any real or significant way or take any serious risk of any kind or jeopardize your security or risk rejection or maybe not make as much money as you want to when you grow up or whatever it is. And look, we want to tell each other that stuff because we want that to be true for us. We would like a way out of Christian discipleship being the thing where Jesus says, 
deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Where are we going? Over to that place where people get nailed to crosses. We would like not to have to live into the truth of Jesus' words that if, you're, if you want to be alive, you're going to find your life by losing it. There are innumerable ways that we lie to ourselves and to each other to convince ourselves that that's not the truth. Actually, there's actually a way around it. You can be a Christian and not die. Did Jesus actually say, if you want to live, you have to die? We tell each other. We do this with the best of intentions. We want each other to be happy. But that vision of happiness has a distrust of God lurking in it. Hear me say that again. The reason we tell each other that lie is because we want each other to be happy. It's a good thing to want for each other. But that understanding of what happiness is, it has a distrust of God lurking inside of it. The most valuable people in my life are folks that won't let me get away with the stuff that I would let myself get away with. Oh, and it, it irritates the crap out of me sometimes. Like my wife is one of them, for sure. There's lots of times that I'm just like, you could just give me this right now, you know? You don't have to give me such a freaking hard time about this in this moment. But in the end, I'm glad that she doesn't. Do everything that you can to prize and not to punish truthfulness in your relationships. Because sometimes, frequently, when people are helping you resist the, the voice of Satan, they will do it very imperfectly. And in ways that are super clumsy and honestly really annoying and offensive. <laughs> very imperfectly. But you don't want to be a person that teaches your friends not to tell you the truth. So don't make, it do, don't make them do it perfectly. Because what will eventually happen is nobody will tell you whenever you're listening to this thing. Does that make sense? Humanity after the fall is vulnerable to the voice of the serpent in a way that's far more severe than Adam and Eve were before the fall. If the serpent was a potent foe in the garden, in the garden, when humanity was still free of sin with an uncorrupted nature and will, the serpent is all the more dangerous now. And so even though everything I've just been saying is like good best practice, I also want to be very real with you that in the end, ultimately what we need is to be rescued by God. We need for Christ to face our adversary in a way that we cannot face him alone or even together. Everywhere that Adam and Eve fail in their encounter with the serpent, Jesus does not fail. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden where they encounter the serpent so too the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness and finally into the Garden of Gethsemane where he encounters that same malevolent voice of deception. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus warns the apostles, watch and pray, stay awake, watch and pray. And why? That you may not enter into temptation. Why did he say that? Because the devil's in that garden. He knows that the same serpent that deceived Adam and Eve is sifting and tempting the disciples. But every one of the 12 ends up succumbing in his own way to the serpent's deceptions. From Judas, who so completely consents to Satan's lies as to become his very emissary and agent, to Peter, who in his pride abandons Jesus in his hour of need, denying three times that he knows him. But whereas Eve reaches out to take hold of the fruit, 
of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in belief that by doing so, that she will seize godlike status. Jesus, as we read in Philippians, even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead he emptied himself. Whereas Adam and Eve fell through disobedience, Jesus entrusted himself into the hands of the Father by becoming obedient to the Father's will, even to the point of death on a cross. The prevalence of Satan and the demonic in the gospel narratives then is kind of, it's, it's sobering. It puts us on notice. But ironically, it heralds the arrive, arrival of a new beginning. A new beginning is taking place in Jesus' arrival. The reign of the serpent, the reign of death over humanity, it's threatened by Jesus' arrival. And that is why the forces of Satan are arrayed so maliciously against him. Indeed, the story of Jesus' ministry, it's no small part the story of his absolute dominance over the demonic principalities and powers of wickedness. In the gospel, Satan and his minions, they are repeatedly overcome by Jesus' voice and his authority. In practice, what this means is that we have more than just our own willpower and effort, and even more than just the willpower of the Christian community to rely upon, we have a Savior to whom we can cry for help amid every temptation and deception that we may face. And that makes all the difference for what it means to find ourselves living in a world where the serpent is still on the loose. I'm almost done here. Bear with me. I want to read you the story from this guy named Abba Elias. That also happens to be the name of my son. Not the Abba part, but the Elias part. Maybe one day he'll be an Abba. I don't know. Abba Elias was uh, one of what we call the Desert Fathers. He was a Christian hermit that lived in a cave in Egypt for a real long time. For like, some people say like 80 years, maybe. Back in the 4th century. This is around the time that some Christians started, like Christianity kind of started to be mainstream in the Roman Empire. And some Christians started to be like, uh, it doesn't seem like this is supposed to be that comfortable for us, so I'm going to go live in a cave and like have nothing and pray all the time and be with God. And some of these jokers wrote some real good stuff. Abba Elias is one of them. Here's a story that he tells. Abba Elias said, an old man was living in a temple, and the demons came to say to him, leave this place, which belongs to us. And the old man said, no place belongs to you. Then they began to scatter his palm leaves about one by one, and the old man went on gathering them together with perseverance. Seems like he's doing pretty good. A little later, the devil took his hand and pulled him to the door. When the old man reached the door, he seized the lintel with the other hand crying out, Jesus, save me. Immediately, the devil fled away. Then the old man began to weep. Then the Lord said to him, why are you weeping? And the old man said, because the devils have dared to seize a man and treat him like this. The Lord said to him, you had been careless. As soon as you turned to me again, you see I was beside you. And then Abba Elias goes on to say, I say this because it is necessary to take great pains. And anyone who does not do so cannot come to, the, to his God, for he himself was crucified for our sake. But what are the great pains 
that Elias is saying that we Christians need to take. What does the Lord mean in this story when he says, you have been careless? Is he chastening him for not trying hard enough? For not knowing enough Bible? For not resisting the devil? Was he careless in any of those ways? The only carelessness here is that it took him so dang long to cry out to Jesus. Because the instant that he did that, the battle's over. In our encounter with the serpent, we have recourse to the only human being who is the very son of God, who has ever perfectly resisted the serpent. In Jesus, we're given more than the gift of commandments. We're given the one who, though assailed and assaulted by the devil, has perfectly obeyed those commandments. We read in the book of Hebrews, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what we're doing tonight whenever we gather around the table of the Lord's Supper. Here, as we gather around this table, we confess our sins in plain, simple language. We're going to say, God, we didn't do the stuff you told us to do. And there's lots of stuff that we did that we were very clearly told not to do. Here at this table, we'll pray with the words Jesus teaches us to pray. Part of those words are these ones. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And here we draw near to the one who does so lead us, who in his journey to the cross, in his death and resurrection, has led us out of bondage to sin and death. Here at this table, we cry out to Jesus and so receive mercy and find his gracious help in this, our time of need.